Hi, this is John Deke, celebrating 25 years of the very young composers of the New York Philharmonic. The music we're hearing is by our Finnish very young composer, Jonas Pesonen, and it's called Vulcano, or Volcano. This is scene two, a magical world. A huge steam engine is coming down the tracks to the Lakeshore Station in Porter County. I'm terrified of this impossibly giant locomotive as it approaches. It's hissing, screaming, grinding. I turn away and try to put my hands over my ears. It's 1950, and I am seven years old, and my Uncle Henry has come to Ogden Dunes, Indiana, to take my mother and me to hear the Chicago Symphony. Well, I feel better once on the train, but when we get off in the loop, or downtown Chicago, that is, I'm so confused on the streets. I feel almost like running away rather than holding my mother's hand. Wow, this is Chicago, such a big city, so far from Porter County. So many people, big people everywhere. I don't see anyone near my age. And in the lobby of Orchestra Hall, I feel like I'm being smothered by the crowd around me, above me, far above my head. But when we go out into the hall itself and take our seats, I am suddenly amazed at the huge expanse. This hall is vast, arching, far above me. And on the stage, there are musicians gathering. Some are talking, warming up, playing their instruments. And there is a feeling of gradually coming together of excitement, we're expecting something. I recognize some of the sounds of the musicians as they play, but it's confusing. I mean, the jumbled sounds increase, but then suddenly die away as a man approaches, holding his violin. A few people applaud. Then the whole orchestra plays one long note with a few variations frilling at the edges. They're tuning their instruments, whispers Uncle Henry to me. Finally, a man appears. Everyone claps their hands. He's a large man, kind of gangly, with frizzy hair that sticks out. I later learn that his name is Rafael Kubelik, and that he is Czech, which is not too far from where my mother was born. Without saying anything to us, he turns to the orchestra and raises his hands. And what happens next is truly difficult to describe. I'm transported immediately into another world. The violins are swirling, soaring, diving into the Berlioz overture. The bigger instruments come swooping down with this velvety, pulsing sound, strong and deep, and the wind instruments are arching over them. Sometimes they're chattering like confetti falling, sometimes triumphant, like a royal ceremony. I do recognize flutes, the clarinets, who seem to be kind of babbling, and the trumpets who are laughing, but others I can't recognize. So many feelings I can hardly keep track. I'm blinking my eyes, tossed, confused, and yet I'm soaring around with the music in a new landscape, scary and beautiful beyond my wildest imagination. I'm exhausted, yet wanting more, much more. The other pieces on the program by Janacek and Beethoven continued to take me to these places that I never knew existed. The Janacek, later I found out it was called the Sinfonietta, and those trumpets again, 
What is all this obsessive repetition about? It reminds me of a nightmare I often had, except that it's written much larger than myself, somehow shared and, and, and not threatening, but, but kind of, wow, exhilarating. I somehow know right there and then that this moment, this is where I want to be. This is where I am. But did I know that this would turn out to be my life's love? <laughs> well, of course not. But the years have only strengthened my conviction that the symphony orchestra is absolutely the most amazing thing that humans have ever managed to put together. Ha! So, hearing the Chicago Symphony at age seven was a life-changing experience. And along with my dear old piano teacher, Mrs. Kepke, who encouraged me to take crazy, creative leaps. <laughs> and there were other, also, watershed experiences that eventually flowed into the making of what was to become the very young composers. It all came together, but I wasn't aware of that for a long time yet. Okay, now Porter County in northern Indiana, just after World War II, was still a rural area, and in the grade school I attended, most of the kids were from farm families. I still look back on them with great affection and respect, as they were an honest and hard-working community. Although I did stutter badly as a child, and so was extremely shy to even just try to speak. But stuttering is one thing, and surviving death quite another. In the hospital where I was born, in wartime Hammond, my mother, by some instinctive conviction, that first day, insisted on keeping me with her all night. But, Mrs. Deke, you need your sleep. We'll care for your baby in the nursery. No, I'm sorry. I'll keep him with me. And as it happened, almost all the babies in that nursery died in the spread of an infection. This was in the days before penicillin. Yikes! Thanks, Mom. Wow. But four years later, almost to the day, my mother gave birth to my baby sister, Pamela. The birth was stressed. The baby died within a week. And my mother almost died as well. And to the end of her life, she would talk of the baby and visit the little grave. Now, a four-year-old, me, like any kid, can easily pick up on an event like that and be made to feel guilty, even responsible for that kind of tragedy. I did feel that strongly. But eventually, I made a choice to extricate myself into environments that were more creatively nurturing, as we'll see just below. My parents, I'd say, I suppose were lower middle class economically, each emigrated as children from their parents in Hungary and Slovakia respectively, around the time of the First World War. They were both artists. My mother attended the Art Institute of Chicago, which was unusual for that era and economic level. Although she quit when she married my father, my father was a commercial sculptor of fair repute but little financial gain. They met at a dance club in the shadow of the Gary Steel Mills, and I suppose the good was that, obviously, they valued the arts and that my first and most strongly loved aroma as a toddler to this day is the smell of the turpentine used in oil painting. The downside was that they were fiercely combative with each other, resentful, 
somehow. And as an only child, I was expected to witness and even got pulled into their titanic battles as a judge, as if I could be their marriage counselor. <laughs> but once more, in order to escape from this vehement, suffocating atmosphere, I would run out into the wild sand dunes near Lake Michigan and imagine I was exploring territory never seen by humans. And yet, on the other hand, I was grateful to my parents. They helped me so much and arranged piano lessons so I was able to take refuge in my music. Also in those days, I had a playmate and a good friend named Cindy who lived just down the dirt road from me. We would make up our own silly little songs and rhymes. We played mostly outside in the sand dunes, whether swimming, pretending we were explorers, making sand sculptures, or sledding in the winter. We were fascinated with the little tadpoles in the ponds as they grew into sleek green frogs. I was convinced that kittens were actually born from pods of pussy willow bushes. The world around us was miraculous. But then Cindy and her family moved away, and I felt abandoned, almost as if losing a part of myself. We did exchange a few halting, stiff letters, but I never saw her again. However, that year another great life-changing experience took place. In the summer of 1950, my mother took me out onto the Great Northern Railway to visit her parents, who had moved out to a farm near Portland, Oregon. When the train pulled into a station at the edge of Glacier National Park, I was allowed to descend from the train for a few minutes. It was my first ever view of mountains. For the first time in my life, I realized the immense diversity of the planet on which we live, the wondrous complexity and unfathomable depths, the driving, soaring power, the sensuality of gigantic trees, the colossal rocks thundering up to heavenly snowfields, the animals, tiny, little, huge, running wild and free. How, how, dear God, can all this be? I just wanted to go up there, climb there, be there, become part of the mountains, only... Come on, Johnny, the train is about to leave. I was overwhelmed, both speechless and babbling for the rest of the trip, excited but no doubt an annoyance to those around me. Seeing the great Cascade Mountains, standing at the foot of Mount Hood and Mount Rainier only intensified that hunger, as if I could grasp it all in my arms and yet lose myself in it. That revelation, those moments' epiphany, has never left me. The drama of life played out against the sacred, beautiful immensity of earth and the resultant expression in symphonic music is with me to this very moment. Much later, I would experience local traditional music on six continents, and I would feel connected to the people there as well, everywhere, who had the same ageless awe of this world, of our blessing. Mentioning religion, I was raised in the Greek Orthodox rite of the Catholic Church, although religion was another touch point of rage between my parents. Until the age of 10 or 11, I imagined myself to be a priest or later some sort of mystic shaman living in the wild. For example, back at age 7 in Oregon, I clearly remember a discussion between myself, my mother, and my cousin Freddy. This was confirmed by my mother later. Freddy, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
a lumberjack. Why, cut down all those trees? Ah, there are so many of them. They could never cut them all down. But what if they could? And where would all the animals go to live? At this point, my mother intervenes. Johnny, people need to build houses. You live in one yourself. But mom, couldn't they build houses out of bricks or rocks instead of trees? People need to heat their fireplaces in winter. You wouldn't want them to be out in the cold, would you, Johnny? No, I guess not. But I was still entranced with how beautiful the earth was. It was a magical world. It still is. Somewhere during that time, a dream which has recurred even to this day. I'm climbing uphill, struggling, dark rocks and ugly, messy coal. My spirit detaches itself from me and leads me to a side path toward an archway behind which there's a green meadow. It is my female self. I ignore and avoid that archway, and I keep on struggling up the coal. Finally, I again glimpse the green flowery meadow. Would I take that path? Not sure, because I would often wake up at that moment. But once, when the dream recurred, I seemed to take the meadow's path, and there were children playing there. Hmm. I was also plagued by nightmares, tasks like giant reels of tape or rope unrolling to impossible distances requiring me to travel them, retrieve them, to carry heavy loads. Tasks like an airplane about to crash, children screaming, I have to take the controls and save them. But not all was horror or nightmare, not by a long shot. <laughs> I wrote poems, maybe silly poems, about grasses, sand, frogs, and wind, and I imagined music coming out of the ground, rising like intricate, powerful trees to great heights. I would write that music, and people would listen and be moved. I went to grade school, and I did fairly well, and I made some lasting friendships, except that I was always called on for gazing out the window and daydreaming. And coming to my senses, I would be aware of the stern look of the teacher and the other kids laughing. Such was my life until the trauma of a move to Chicago at age 12. All the bright and shining and magic life that I had imagined, the infinity of earth and its beauty, were all suddenly upended by a move to the chaos of urban America.